Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Booklarder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. This week, we celebrate American Independence Day, and I think the author we're featuring has a quintessentially American story. Eric Silverstein comes from a multicultural background, has lived in Asia and the U.S., and after practicing law for a few years, he decided to give up his comfortable career for the unpredictable restaurant business. The food at both his restaurants and in his new cookbook, The Peach Tortilla, is influenced by both his Asian upbringing and his adopted hometown of Austin, Texas. Eric visited our kitchen in May 2019 and discussed his cooking, his career change, and the ups and downs of the restaurant business. Here's Eric Silverstein and the Peach Tortilla. Thank you. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Eric Silverstein. I flew in last night from Austin. So I own, obviously, the Peach Tortilla in Austin, Texas. For those that aren't too familiar with us, I started the business as a food truck back in 2010, so nine years ago. I did not enter the hospitality business sort of in a straight line trajectory. I used to be a lawyer, so I actually went, went to law school at Washington University in St. Louis. I practiced law for three years and was at a pretty significant turning point when I was about 26, um, when I quickly realized that the law and billing hours uh, wasn't quite for me even though the salary was amazing and I had great benefits and all that came with a, a, a good legal job, my heart wasn't in it. And I, and I did feel at the time, you know, that if I'd continued down that path, I probably would never have the guts to make a change. You know, three more years, you come up for partner and it becomes tough to quit your job and, and change careers, especially when you have kids and a family and all that. Uh, so I made the decision when I was 26 to pitch a business plan and I really wanted to open a restaurant. My dad has been in the restaurant business for many years. Food has always been a passion. Food has just always been something important in, in our family. Rolled out a business plan and quickly realized that not a lot of people were uh, too interested in investing in a lawyer who wanted to change careers to open a restaurant. <laughs> you know, the common response was, we love you. We think you're awesome. We think you'll be successful, but we're not going to invest in you. And so at that time, it was kind of a turning point for me in terms of you know, how am I going to get this business off the ground? How am I going to pursue this dream? Or am I just going to go and continue working as a lawyer? The answer came in the form of a food truck. My sister, who was living in L.A., started telling me about the food trucks that were, that were growing and, and doing good business. Instead of needing dollars dollars $500,000, uh, I needed 70000 bucks to start a food truck. I funded it with half my money, quit my job as a lawyer. I walked into my managing partner's office, and I remember him asking me whether that meant I was going to run a popcorn stand at a, at a carnival. And I said, no, I'm running a food truck. This was in Missouri at the time, so food trucks hadn't hit St. Louis yet. And then moved down to the Austin, and, and the rest is sort of history. I was 27 at the time. I'm 36 now. So it's been about nine years. It'll be nine years in July. And I, and I bring that stuff up because this book is more than just a cookbook for me. It's really about you know, inspiring and working with other food truck owners and small business owners. I get a lot of people hit, who hit me up and ask me how to grow in the food truck business. I've always said the food truck business is, is one of the most incredibly challenging businesses to be in. It's kind of like a lemonade stand on steroids, except anything that could ever possibly go wrong in a business will go wrong in a food truck. Whether it's your generator dying, flat tires, your engine blowing up, which happened to us on, you know, 35 in Austin, refrigeration not working. I mean, literally, it's, it's 
one of the most challenging businesses. And so I do want to reference uh, a Seattle tie to this book. In 2011, I did San Francisco Street Food Festival and five of us out-of-towners went to San Francisco and, and did the festival. One of the trucks that was out there, or food trailers, was Skillet. Ended up becoming good friends with Josh Henderson, who was the original founder of Skillet. And Josh didn't even have a restaurant at the time. He, he ended up building the Cap Hill location about a year after we met. He was kind of a mentor for me as I was really on the fence about whether to, to continue because it was such a hard business. I felt like I could really only talk to somebody who had been in the business and understood like the pains of, of trying to grow this thing and, and the pains of trying to run a food truck. In 2012, I called him and asked him what, what he thought I should do. And he said, you need to go for it and, and open a restaurant. We ended up doing that in 2014. He came out with one of his chefs and one of his operations managers and uh, helped our team open. And so he wrote the foreword in this book. You know, we still keep in touch. We had dinner last night. He kind of helped me to, to get to that next level. And I'm hoping this book helps other aspiring food truck owners or food trailer owners or anyone who's just trying to get into the food business really take that next step. I guess I'll talk a little bit about my journey in this kind of crazy food truck world and, and sort of my background. I am half Chinese. I grew up in, in Japan. I was born in Tokyo. And I lived in Tokyo for 12 years. It's funny, I have two, two friends here that are half Japanese, another friend that's coming that's half Japanese. And Chris, who's sitting there, I haven't seen him in 20 plus years, but we went to elementary school together in Tokyo. So it's hard to explain what it's like to grow up in Asia, you know, as an American, but I really didn't identify as an American culturally because we, we all went to international school. And my, my parents sent me to a Japanese preschool, believe it or not. And I, I finally asked them to take me out because I felt so different, even though I spoke Japanese as a kid. So I went to international school, which was awesome. You know, all of us were kind of different from very different backgrounds, Africans, Filipinos, a lot of half Japanese kids, half Korean kids. It was just literally everyone. It was a total mix mash of cultures. What really shaped me in Japan was the culture in Japan, which I, I felt at the time I was more culturally Japanese than anything else, and also the food. The food in Japan has always been some of my favorite food. And then on top of that, growing up in a half Chinese household with a mother that cooked a lot of Chinese food, that food influenced me as well. So it was kind of this mix mash of being in international school, living in Japan for 12 years, having a Chinese mom, and all that, all that food influence really inspired me throughout this sort of food journey. That's why if you look through this book, all the recipes are kind of influenced by my travels or my mom's cooking or the food I had in Japan. And I felt like if I didn't put that story in the book, it really wouldn't make any sense. Like if you just look at my name, you're like, this sounds you know, like a Jewish guy writing about all kinds of weird <laughs> you know, food. It doesn't, doesn't really add up. But for me, like that's the food I grew up eating, you know, whether it was tempura or okonomiyaki or yakitori or onigiri or oden or my mom's soy sauce chicken, mom's shrimp toast, Hainanese chicken rice, chow fun. That's the food that really is comforting to me. I'd say about 30 to 40 recipes in this book are inspired by that. And then there's also a section in this book on Japanese American fast food. Um, which most people would, would be like, why would you be inspired by fast food? But Japanese-American fast food, to me, is unlike any other. There's a concept in Japan called Moss Burger. It stands for uh, Mountain Ocean Seas. And they had my favorite hamburgers as a kid growing up. 
When you walk into a Japanese fast food uh, store, it's pristine. The employees are incredibly hospitable. You get your food fast. It's delicately wrapped and it tastes really good. So I always loved Japanese fast food. And on top of that, my dad worked for Kentucky Fried Chicken of all places. Kentucky Fried Chicken in Japan is pretty awesome too. And so I, I grew up eating a lot, a lot of KFC. So there's a chapter in this book that's really inspired by all of those kind of flavors. My riffs on flavors. So like Moss Burger, for instance, has a miso ragu burger with like a tomato, you know, and they have a teriyaki burger. So we created the Japa Jam Burger, which has like tomato jam and a hoisin-based sauce that you can make at home now. And there's a recipe for that in this book. We do some Japanese-inspired hot dogs, kind of like an Asian fusion fried chicken. You know, I didn't take that stuff verbatim necessarily from eating in Japan, but it, it definitely inspired me. And another one of my elementary school friends just walked in, so he's also half Japanese, so it's, it's like a reunion tour in here. So, uh, so yeah, so that background really, really influenced me uh, kind of growing up. Um, when I was 12, I moved to Atlanta. My parents sent me to private school, and it was a big culture shock for me. Uh, and I write about it in this book because I love my parents. I think they're the best parents in the world, but they didn't prepare me for, you know, what I was about to go through in terms of, it's very difficult to explain, but culturally, when you go to international school in Asia, everyone's different cultures, different races, you don't, you don't think about being different because everyone's different, you know, and you, you kind of create this weird internal culture where everyone speaks with an accent and everyone's just uniquely different. But my parents sent me to a private school in Atlanta that was incredibly homogenous. There were two Asian kids and, I, you know, I was one of them. And so to go from that to this very proper private school, I remember my, my mom took me to go shopping for my uniform, you know, before the first day of school. And she was like, well, you got to buy khaki pants and you have to buy, you know, a collared polo shirt. It was a little weird, you know, for me. And, you know, she would send me to school with uh, a bento box, you know, and like onigiri in it. The people would be staring at me like, what are you, what are you eating? So there was definitely a cultural learning curve for me coming to the States. But with it came a lot of positives, to be honest. Like being in Atlanta, like I've, I kind of fell in love with Southern food. I tried to incorporate a lot of that stuff into my cooking, which I knew nothing about when I went to Atlanta. I, I didn't know anything about Atlanta when I got there. I knew Coke. That's all I knew. And, I, you know, I knew about the sports teams. So I spent six years in Atlanta, and then I ended up going to Missouri to do my undergraduate degree at WashU and then stayed for law school and then did the legal career. I guess I'll, I'll touch a little bit about my journey in the food truck business, I, I've kind of alluded to this, but the food truck business is, is so hard. It's, it's incredibly challenging. Anyone who makes it out of the food truck business is either lucky or uniquely savvy or just persistent. Um, you don't just fall into success out of the food truck business. It's just too hard. And so for about three years in, in the food truck business, I was pretty much at my wit's end. I took no paycheck for like two years, worked like a dog in Austin's hotter than hell and there's no AC in these trucks. When I, when I started, I, I leased a lonchera. So it was an old, basically an old Mexican taco truck. You know, and these things don't even have generators on them. The way they run is you have a, you have a fridge that basically chills an ice block inside and then you run a, f a fan that blows and circulates air to keep everything cool. It's no longer allowed by the health department, but that's how old school these trucks were. I got my first truck, I had like 250,000 miles on it. 
I was paying like 3,500 bucks a month to rent this piece of crap. So the two years was incredibly difficult. Ended up at one point putting the business up for sale because I, I felt like I couldn't do it anymore. There were days where I would just dream of being like, you know, like a barista at Starbucks, because at least that would make me like 10 bucks an hour. And, and that sounded like, like a win at that point. I, I think there, there wasn't, people all ask me all, all, all the time, like, was there a turning point in your life, like where the skies parted and like a ray of sun, sunlight beamed down on me? And that didn't really happen. It was more like we were more methodical about how to make this business successful. Because the, the food truck model, I've said it like over and over again, is so broken. The expectation with food trucks is that you have lower overhead, so you have to, you kind of have to charge lower for your product. The reality is most food trucks owners, they may make money, but the money they're making is their salary for, for running the business. So you're basically like buying a job when you operate a food truck, essentially. It's like a Subway franchise. You, like, you want to make like 40,000 bucks a year, you, you run your food truck business. And for me, that wasn't good enough. So we ended up kind of flipping our model on our head and using the food truck for what it was, which was a kitchen on wheels. We did a lot of private events, catering, built a book of business that way, and then finally cash flowed enough to have a conversation about opening a restaurant, which is when I started talking to Josh. In 2014, we opened our, our first brick and mortar restaurant. And instead of just kind of driving the food truck into the restaurant, so to speak, in terms of the menu and the service style, we decided to, to kind of take a, another leap. So we ended up having a full bar program, full service, a much more extended menu beyond just street food. So even though a lot of the street food recipes are in here, a lot of our uh, comfort food recipes, which we created for the initial restaurant, are also in here. That's when I felt like we took a leap from being a food truck into something much more legitimate. And ever since we did that, I wouldn't say like the restaurant business is easy, so it hasn't gotten necessarily easier, but we've been able to see the light at the end of the tunnel a lot, a lot better. In 2016, we decided we couldn't run our catering business out of our restaurant anymore because we were trying to run it through the back door. We had a big kitchen built, but it couldn't keep up. So we ended up building what is now a 7,000 square foot facility that is our catering hub, but also called Peach Social House, which is my event space. In 2018, we opened up a fast casual unit inside of Austin Bergstrom International Airport. So if you guys ever fly through Austin, we're in front of gate 16. So that's a fast casual outpost that serves our, our street food. This past January, we just opened up Bar Peach, which is a, a bar-focused restaurant. It's still a restaurant. We have like 125 seats. A lot of the Asian-inspired kind of shareable plates, just a little more bar-friendly, large patio. So that's kind of been the evolution of Peach Tortilla. A lot of people ask me, what are you, what are you doing next? Or what do you want to do next? I don't have a good answer for that for anyone. You know, there, it's weird. Sometimes you just walk into a space space because as a restaurant owner, you, as you have more restaurants, people start coming to you with spaces and they say, hey, what do you think, what do you think about this space? Do you, you want to do something here? And so it's, it's tough to say, but when I walk into a space, I usually can feel early on whether it's a yes or no. And I think eventually, you know, that'll happen with another space. But I also just had a, another, my second son was born two weeks ago. So I'm, I'm kind of focused on being a, a dad. What's unfortunate about our business is it kind of forces you to choose whether you want to be a, a good dad or run a successful business. Because we work when everyone else has fun. That means missing Valentine's Day. That means missing Mother's Day every year. That means being out Friday nights and Saturday nights and Sunday for brunch. 
So there's sacrifices to be made that, that they're just inherent in this business, which makes it more challenging to open up more restaurants. The guys that do it with families, you know, there's a sacrifice somewhere in there. It has to come out of one end or the other, right? Like nobody's, nobody can burn both ends of the candle. That's a factor for sure in, in terms of like our ability to grow. I, I've, I think I've determined, you know, last night actually I, I we sat down to dinner with Josh and we talked about this. It was like, at what point do you say like you're happy with where you're at and you make enough money as a restaurant owner to kind of put the ego aside, so to speak, and say like, I don't need to build like three or four more restaurants or have six under your portfolio. But also as a restaurant owner, the ego is kind of what got you there in the first place. I, I always say, and I say in this book, like if I didn't have an ego, I probably wouldn't have opened my first restaurant. I would have just ran a giant catering company. But the ego gets you, right? Because you're like, well, nobody's going to even know about this catering company. Like it doesn't get, it's not going to get press. Like you're not going to, nobody cares about catering companies. They, they care about restaurants. So, you know, it's this juggling act of like, how do you balance your ego with your business as well? So that's kind of a part of it. But that's, that's kind of a, a quick and dirty trajectory of my nine years of, of, doing, of being in this business. The recipes in this book are largely from the, the initial food trucks that we had, the restaurants that we have. I mean, Bar Peach opened after this book, after I sent in the manuscript, so none of those recipes are in here. And then I did have a, a short-lived food truck called Yume Burger, which was a Japanese-inspired burger truck. That's no longer still going, but a lot of those recipes are in here as well. And then, like I said, a lot of, a lot of comfort food from, from my youth growing up in Japan and having my mom's food. With that, I'd love to just kind of have a dialogue and answer any questions anyone might have or talk further about the book. Yeah. So I noticed in your book that you have lots of pictures of noodles, like Asian noodles. But sure. You list the brands, and it's always hard for me if I go into an Asian market sure. to look at that stuff and say, what is that? Yeah. It's all bright and beautiful. Do you have like a list somewhere that you post of different brands to use? Um, I think I might mention some brands in the book, like like for instance, reading Dandan Noodles tonight, and I, I reference uh, the Quan Yik Noodle brand, which is a noodle company out of San Francisco, or like a a Canton wheat noodle. The thing with noodles that I found with especially Asian noodles is even as restaurant owners, when we get massive supply, our suppliers still run out. So they're difficult to source and source consistently. I would say my rule of thumb when I go to an Asian grocery store is I tend to buy a few different types and see what works the best. If there is a fresh noodle product, I will lean towards that. But the, the type of noodle matters, right? Like probably wouldn't go and buy Korean noodles for a lot of these recipes because I don't have any Korean noodle dishes in it. Um, a lot of them are Chinese inspired or, or Japanese. I have some ramen recipes in here. I also have a laksa recipe that uses a ramen noodle. Those are easier to source because Sun Noodle now, which is another brand, Sun Noodle will sell you a sauce packet and then the actual noodle in the frozen section. Truth be told, like every restaurant owner that 99% of them are buying their ramen noodles and they're coming in frozen. So don't feel bad about that. And then another recipe we have is the, the Southern Fun, which is a wide rice noodle. That could be a Vietnamese or Chinese product and you want to get that fresh. So you're saying for ramen, you actually it comes frozen, it's fresh frozen, right? So it's a fresh product that's frozen and then you just defrost it in the fridge overnight and then you just boil it, cook it in boiling water for three minutes. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, two and a half, three minutes. Why did you choose Austin versus some of the other kind of yeah. food truck cities like Portland, Seattle, Illinois? Sure. I thought about Seattle. 
I thought about Seattle. I ran it. Uh, it was between Seattle, Denver, and, and Austin. And I gave my girlfriend, uh, who's now my wife, the opportunity to pick. I basically was like, look, I, I've, been in I've done my time in Missouri. Uh, I've been here 10 years. I'm not sticking around. <laughs> do, you know, do you want to come with me? Uh, I'll let you pick the city. I don't really care where, where we go. I just want to run a business. We visited Austin. We liked it. The weather was a big component of it. Um, she likes sunshine. Although lately, yeah, that, that kind of ousted Seattle. We love Seattle, though. So the weather was a big component. But the biggest thing for me was I didn't want to purchase a food truck out the gate. So I needed a city where I could lease a food truck and where I could commissary the food truck. And so I kind of backdoored it because Austin had this, no joke on this name, this facility called Snappy Snacks. And it was an old school commissary where... Hispanic immigrants ran route trucks to construction sites. And I found them online and I said, look, I'm probably not your typical customer, but I want to come in, I want to wrap this vehicle and I want to use it to start my business. And it was a good opportunity for me from a business perspective because I could use the other money that we had that had been invested into the company to spend on like a website, like for operating capital, for inventory, all the other things. So we could start the business with like 70 grand a, a, a souped-up food truck costs about seventy grand alone. If I had bought a food truck, we would have had to have raised about one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So that was a big component. And just Austin was the weather was in our favor. Although lately it hasn't been, but the weather was in our favor. I think we were in the middle of a drought when I moved there, and so it didn't rain for like the entire first year of operation, which is good for business. But what people don't know about Austin is it's actually archaic in their laws. There's no real street food in Austin. It's kind of like Seattle you have to basically be on private property to serve the public. So you can't park downtown on a street. I mean, even though I did that a lot and I got a lot of tickets for it, and there was a lot of FUs thrown at the parking lady, but, but you have to be on private property. So what happens is there's a supply and demand, and then parking lot owners realize the supply of food truck owners that need those spaces, and all of a sudden you're paying the park all over Austin and it becomes, you're, you're getting gouged left and right, right? Like as a food truck owner, like you can't afford that. Um, so that's the only negative. And like in, in Seattle, I think you have to buy, you have to buy up permits with the city. I think that's what like Skillet did initially and like all these other guys is they, they buy up permits and then park on private property. Where do you spend most of your time? Are you at a specific location? It's a good question, yeah. Week, I jump around a lot. Yeah, I'm usually at location to lo location. So I, I'm the executive chef of our original location. So I write the menus for that and do R&D. But even that location, I can't be at you know 40 or 50 hours a week. I have an office inside of our event space that I probably spend like 10 to 12 hours a week. If I go to the airport, it's like a five hour, it's like a minimum five to six hour commitment because of going through security and parking and all that stuff. And then I'm, I'm at Bar Peach and Peach Tortilla probably I guess 16 to 24 hours a week between the two of them. This is going to sound insane, but a lot of my time is spent like talking to like repair people. Like um, if it doesn't break on its own, then somebody will break it, whether it's a, a staff member or a customer. Like my restaurant on Burnett flooded one night because somebody kicked my urinal and like it sprayed water into the wall. And then my whole restaurant was underwater and, so we had to close and like AC's gone out in my new location like three times because it wasn't maintained by the prior tenant. So walk-ins going down. It's a lot of repairs and like just 
stuff that'll make your head spin. Like Thanksgiving night, two years ago, we got broken into of all, the, of all nights. And so I get a phone call at like three in the morning saying like, you're being robbed. Like you need to come down and deal with that. So, I mean, the restaurant businesses, you know, a lot of people are like, you know, when they read like Anthony Bourdain's like no reservations or like, is that, is this like hyperbole? Is this, it's not like it's, it's, it's absolute like insanity every other day. Like, you know, if my phone doesn't blow up one day, it's a win. The business has really humbled me as a person, I think. Like, I felt like I was a know-it-all when I was 27. I felt like I can get into this business. I can make waves really early on. I can make food trucks profitable. I can get into a restaurant within a year. And all these problems that other people say persist in the industry, like, they won't affect me. And I think that was kind of a naive... I mean, it was probably good to be naive because I probably wouldn't have gotten into it if I had known it was going to be like that. But at the same time, it's definitely taught me a lot about how to manage all these problems. It's, it's basically like I'm, I'm in the restaurant business, but I'm basically in the people management business is essentially what it is. Because I rely on so many people to get a job done. And especially with so many people like at an hourly wage, there's just a lot of pressure on me and our managers to make sure that everyone does their job. It's much more difficult to get everyone to do their job the right way these days. It takes a lot of, a lot of culture development. Yeah. Uh, do you have a process for developing recipes and how does it compare to back when you had a single food truck? Well, I mean, we had a single food truck. We were mainly developing street food items, but now we're developing pretty much whatever we want that's in play. I honestly, try to look at different things for inspiration and then that'll spark different ideas, whether it's Instagram or watching like different TV shows or traveling or eating at different restaurants, those things spark things, create new ideas, you know? And that's really what I'm, I'm drawing from now. Or even like recently, like inspiration, like just rereading this book and like I became more inspired to like do more like Japanese fast food items that I kind of haven't played with in like six years, you know, since I closed that Yume Burger truck. Thank you, Eric, so much. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thank you to Eric Silverstein for visiting us in Seattle and to Sterling Publishing. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of The Peach Tortilla and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at Booklarder. For more information about Booklarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, please visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.